We go to the Word, but before we do, we go to the Lord in prayer and seek His favor as we read and have His Word ministered to us tonight. Father, for Jesus' sake, we pray Your Word may be of guidance and blessing to us. We would respond in kind, and that we would be refreshed in the Gospel and its value to us as we seek to serve You in light of it and as we rejoice in what You've provided through it. May your spirit so work in our hearts then, Father, and in what's being ministered and what's being read. We pray that you'd hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, we're going to be taking up again our reading from Romans. It's uh, admittedly been a couple of weeks already now since we've done that. I'm thankful for those who were able to fill in for me in the last uh, week, but then also the week before we had Reverend Donovan here, and I was in Sanborn. So we haven't looked at Romans for a few weeks now, but we're going to pick up again tonight on uh, Romans and looking at Romans 3, verses 1 through 8 this evening. Romans 3, 1 through 8. So here's where we're at, and here's what the Word of God says to us then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar as it is written, that, you're, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? Some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So far we read from God's a word tonight, and glad that we could pray that his word may be a blessing to us this evening. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in those times of past weeks when we've been looking at Romans, at least the, the ones that are the passages that are closest to here in Romans 3, uh, we've been hearing about how eager Paul is to come to Rome and preach the gospel. It's part of what he's here to talk about, that he can't wait to be able to go there preach the gospel, because he knows that whether it's Jews or Gentiles, that everybody is in need of the gospel. And he's explained why the Gentiles need it, and, and of late, why the Jews need it. And this passage finishes up why the Jews need it, given that they have had certain covenantal privileges. And there's a cluster, there's a number of questions, but you can pretty much stack them up into about four basic questions that 
the apostle asks, that he figures people are going to ask after hearing that the Jews need the gospel as well as the Gentiles. And so this sermon is really about why the gospel is needed, part three. And it's because of covenantal unfaithfulness. And we make three points from the four basic questions that we'll address. That there's, there's covenant advantage, and, and in that covenant advantage, the gospel has been proclaimed. Uh, God's faithfulness to his covenant remains, and so there's, there again, there's gospel to be proclaimed. And then we take the last two questions and we combine them into one thought, that sin is rightly condemned. And so, again, the gospel's needed to avoid condemnation. So the first question is that we see here in Romans 3 uh, is where Paul asks, but was there an advantage to being a Jew according to the flesh? Ethnically, we might say. He asks, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And the answer he gives is much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul had said in chapter 2 at the end that what really makes a Jew a Jew is if his heart's been circumcised, that he knows inner circumcision of the heart, not of the outward variety, but rather of the inward variety that leads to faith in Jesus Christ and faith in the gospel. So now Paul's anticipating a question that an objector or an inquisitor might pose. Is there any advantage at all then in being a Jew? And we might ask some similar question today about those who have grown up in the church. Is there any advantage of growing up in the church's covenant children? Well, Paul answers the question here, yes, there is an advantage. In fact, he puts it very in a very valued way, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. There's an advantage that was given. And that is, namely, that Jews were those who were custodians of sorts of the oracles of God. So as opposed to the Gentiles of the time, non covenantal people, Jews, you see, had the advantage of possessing the Word of God, the prophecies of God, the promises of God, the stipulations of God, the religion that pointed to Christ, given unto them by God. And so, if you go backtracking tra- back into Romans 1, If Gentiles, you see, had no excuse for their unbelief because the world testified to the eternal nature and divine power of God, then surely the Jews have no excuse because they had the advantage of the special revelation of God given to them through the law, prophets, and the writings. And yet even with those advantages unfaithfulness occurs. And that was something that was not unusual. 
And that's not unusual to us when we, when we read through the Bible and we read through the Old Testament particularly. Uh, that wasn't unusual to see unfaithfulness. And it still isn't. <laughs> you know, so throughout the history of redemption, unbelief has occurred. Not total unbelief, mind you. Again, the advantage of having the oracles of God both then and now is that these are words of gospel that God could use for his glorious ends to bring about a faithful people unto himself. After all, even here, Paul says, not all were unfaithful. He says some were unfaithful. That means some were faithful. But that's what happened. That's what happens. You know, people can be exposed to the word of the Lord for many years. And some never come to faith. Some seem to come to faith, but they fall away. And we say, how does that happen? And we say, people should have known better. And that unbelief causes sadness in the hearts of the faithful. And it causes people to shake their heads. What's true in the world regarding unbelief can be found also in the covenant community. The proclamation of the gospel doesn't guarantee that all will come to a saving knowledge of that gospel. The kingdom is open to some by grace. It's closed to others because of hardened hearts. However, because the covenant community had in its possession the special revelation of God's word, that word could be used to great advantage in the covenant community, and much good occurred because of it. Which is certainly what could be said about the covenant community as well today. Not everybody comes to faith, that is for sure. Even though the word is in the midst of the covenant community. But through that word, Many people have come to faith, and there is reason to praise God for that. Okay, but then says Paul, secondly, what if some were unfaithful? And they were. <laughs> so the question gets asked, and this is really the next question, what if some were unfaithful? It's really a set of questions, isn't it? Does their faithful, excuse me, their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it's written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. Okay, so the question gets asked then, what if some were unfaithful? Does that faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? The question is asked to address whether unfaithfulness to God's covenant impacts God's ability to be faithful to his covenant. If people among the Jews are unfaithful, maybe people think that God is unable, is unable to keep his own promises to keep covenant himself. Does God's faithfulness come into question then? And the apostle is saying here, perish the thought. Keep this maxim in mind always. Let God be true and every man a liar. 
Man can be faithless. Man can be false. Man can be disloyal. Man can be untrue. But those traits can never be said of God ever. We like to put God on the witness stand. Well, a lot of things. Or better yet, on trial. And interrogated. About the level of goodness that he has. Or trueness that he has. And how we would do things differently if we were king. We were God. Unbelief likes to do that. If God is good, why do bad things happen? Let, let God be true and every man a liar. God is sovereign over everything, and why did sin come into the world? Let God be true, and every man alive. If God is so loving, then why doesn't he save everyone? Why doesn't he elect everyone? That's not fair. Let God be true, and every man alive. And we see that, of course, in the catechism questions that have been penned. God made man and woman. It must be God's fault for sin. Let God be true. And every man a liar. God's unfair with me. Here are all the reasons why. Let God be true. And every man a liar. When there's sin, there's unfaithfulness, there's unbelief, what it does is it points out how righteous God is and how unrighteous man is. Man's sin cannot impact, cannot encroach upon God's righteousness. Now, bad company can corrupt good human character. A bad apple can wreck the whole bunch. But man's impurity does not wreck God's purity or justice or his covenant faithfulness. We remember when Jesus would touch the unclean. Well, when you were, according to law, if you touched the unclean, you'd become unclean. That didn't happen with Jesus. Jesus was the righteous one. Jesus was the holy one. When Jesus would touch the unclean, he wasn't impacted by the uncleanness, but the uncleanness was impacted by God the Son incarnate, the Holy One of God. Man's sin doesn't impact God's righteousness. It's the other way around. It's God's righteousness that has its impact on man's sin. Man's sin has its consequences. God's righteousness impacts sin. Now, he does it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one of the ways that he impacts man's sin. But it's also God's righteousness that can judge the wrong of man. Not the other way around. That's why the quote comes from, Isaiah, uh, from Psalm 51. That you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. God judges sin. God is true. This is not the place to bring God to trial. This is not the place to judge God. There is no place to judge God. In fact, what's going to be said later is all are silent before the holy God. We have nothing to say to God about him and his so-called unrighteousness. He has not. 
We have nothing to say to God and against God, but he has plenty to say to us. Be it judging our sin or forgiving it in Christ. Because we're unrighteous and he's righteous and there's this chasm between us, it shows again the main point of Paul because we go back again and say, well, why is Paul writing? He's eager to preach the gospel to these people because he knows how much the gospel's needed. And when we see this chasm between the unrighteous and the righteous God, it points out again that we need the gospel of grace and of Christ to bridge the gap, to remove the enmity between unholy us and the holy God who remains covenantly faithful. But then another pair of questions get asked and, and set of arguments are anticipated by Paul. And he admits that the first question's a weak one and one that comes from sinful, unbelieving man who again wants to judge God for his actions. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous? To inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? This is where we get into how sin is rightly condemned. And here's what's being posed. If the contrast between God's righteousness and un the unrighteousness of man and particularly here, here the covenantally unrighteous one is so great and stark that it causes God's righteousness to shine all the more then shouldn't he be pleased with that situation is he not unrighteous this is a bad question right away because God can't be unrighteous but the question is, is he not unrighteous then to inflict wrath on us? If something good, namely the display of God's righteousness, is the result of man's contrasting unrighteousness, then why should God be mad at that? He should be happy that sin did something good. But the Apostle Paul says that happiness cannot be for a just God who in the end is going to judge the world. Sin is rightly condemned. It's not condoned. If he's unjust with dealing with sin at all, then how can he be qualified to judge the world? And again, if he's not a just God, he's not a God you can trust. Talk like this is nonsense. It'd be like those situations that the prophets faced in the Old Testament times and and that continue to be confronted by a prophetic church today. Evil's good, good's evil. For God to be happy with sin is to deny himself. It's nonsense to talk like that. It'd be like saying that white's black and black's white. I mean, can you imagine, boys and girls, if your mother or father would tell you that it would be a good thing to put your hand on a hot stove? Nobody would say that. It'd be like saying it'd be a good thing to go play on a busy expressway or street, farm road. God doesn't need the sin of man, you see. 
as some kind of reference point so that he can be seen in contrast as good. He doesn't need the darkness of man to make him shine bright. Because God doesn't need man at all to show that he's good. God is good. Period. Let God be true and every man a liar. But God still stays good. God doesn't need contrast to look good. He is good. What is needed is holiness from mankind. And when that is not there, God's wrath rightly falls on that unrighteousness both in this life and in the life to come. That rightful wrath of God then is why Jews and Gentiles alike, why we all need the gospel. And that's a point that Paul is eager to emphasize. And it shows why he's eager to proclaim that gospel. And why people need to be eager to receive it as well. So that the wrath of God doesn't fall on them. That, that's, that's how we need to, to look at the gospel. We need to see the value of the gospel, the essentiality of the gospel. To embrace the gospel. And once we've received it, to rejoice in the gospel. Because in receiving it, this wrath of God that is inevitably going to fall upon sin, that rightly condemns sin, it doesn't fall upon us, thanks to Jesus Christ. Now, in that same vein where sin is rightly condemned, we also hear Paul say this, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their, their, condemnation, their condemnation is just. So Paul's asking, if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why, do, why not do evil that good may come? Now that sounds maybe somewhat similar to what we just heard, but it's coming out of a context where Paul is being slanderously accused of underestimating the importance of doing good because he's bringing the gospel of grace. He's being accused of being lawless, of being antinomian. And so it's a situation that's similar to the question that's asked in the catechism. You know, if we're saved by grace and not our works, then why should we do any good at all? I mean, our evil makes God look good in contrast. That's one of the points that was made. But our evil can also make God's grace look even better. Why not do evil that good might come? What the gospel sounds like to some who don't hear the fullness of the gospel message and are opposed to it is that the best way it would seem to maximize on this gospel of grace is to do as much evil as possible so the good of the gospel of grace can shine the brightest. 
Why then should I be condemned as a sinner? If more falsehood makes God's truth shine even brighter, let's all sin all the more so grace can abound. After all, will not Paul say later on that all things work together for good? Should not and cannot such good ends then justify whatever the means might be? If they are sinful means, so what? Because good comes in the end. So sinners, which we all are, should not be condemned if good comes at the end. And Paul replies, you, you deserve your condemnation if you think that somehow your evil doesn't deserve condemnation, that your evil is somehow justifiable, that your evil is somehow worthwhile. And if you think that God is not worth anything less, that he's not worthy of anything less than perfect righteousness from us. He said, your condemnation is just. Can God use evil in his providence for good? Of course he can. He did it to the utmost at the cross of Jesus Christ. When all the peoples, Jews and Gentiles alike, the powers that be, conspired against God and his Christ. Does he work all things together for good? Yes, indeed he does. He takes the evils of man like he did at the cross of Christ and he turns them on their head, not to their credit, but to spite them. And besides, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. If God is for us, who can be against us? But we need to be in Jesus Christ to know that inseparable law. Otherwise, God's against us. Sin's rightly condemned. Otherwise, we stand in condemnation, not in grace. Otherwise, nothing can separate us from the wrath of God. See, again, sin is rightly condemned. The reality of the condemnation of sin by God and, and the wrath of God against sin is, again, it, it's getting back to this main point. It's why we need the gospel. If we think that grace means live like you want, then we don't understand the gospel. Because we needed that gospel, not just to save us from God's wrath, but to save us from our inability to please Him. And so that we can take joy now in pleasing Him. So we see again why we and the world need the gospel, why we need to value it, why we need to embrace it, why we need to rejoice in it, to be rescued from our unfaithfulness, from God's wrath, from His condemnation, from thinking that evil is good and good is evil. And from a life where God will work good despite us to a life where God will work good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose to which He's always faithful. Let God be true. And every man a liar. 
nobody can do without the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what a blessing, isn't it? When we come to know that. And when others do as well. As the word is spread throughout the world and throughout the ages. Because there's a need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's take a moment to respond in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, again this evening, the bottom line is that we get to be reminded again of the importance of the gospel. We're grateful that by way of your covenant mercies, you have used your oracles in times past and even today uh, to bring people to yourself. And while there are those who are still unfaithful or fall away, even in the midst of, of that, those gospel oracles, you remain faithful. You're, one on, you're the one on whom we can always depend. And you will address sin. And you do. And you will do it unto judgment, and you do it with your gospel. And Father, may we never, in any way, as and maybe when we hear some of these things, we, we think to ourselves, well, how, I would never think like that. But, but certainly, there are those who, who want to think that they can live like they want, even though the gospel, and, the, and that because of the gospel of grace, or that evil is, is good, and good is, is evil. And there are certainly times and times again where you're put on trial. You have no reason to be. We that deserve condemnation, we that deserve the trial, we would be guilty apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how grateful we can be when we can hear the gospel again tell us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We see again that Jew and Gentile alike are in need of the gospel. May we find ourselves embracing it. and May the church of Jesus Christ continue to proclaim it. For now, and as long as Christ tarries, may you accept our prayers for Jesus' sake. Amen. So we sing number 389.